0: This is Spacetime Series 25, Episode 139, for broadcast on the 23rd of December 2022. Coming up on Spacetime, the Mars helicopter sets a new altitude record, a new study suggests dark matter could be made up of dark photons, and NASA's Mars InSight lander still operational, but only just. All that and more coming up on Spacetime.
1: Welcome to Spacetime with Stuart Gary.
0: NASA's Mars Ingenuity helicopter has set a new altitude record on its 35th flight on the red planet. The tiny, tissue-box-sized rotocopter reached an altitude of 14 metres above the floor of Jezero crater during the flight, the second since downloading its new software. The 1.8-kilogram chopper's previous record altitude was 12 metres. Flight 35 was designed to reposition Ingenuity closer to the Perseverance rover, which serves as a communications link between the rotocopter and mission managers back on Earth. Although only brought to Mars to determine if powered flight was possible on the Red Planet, Ingenuity has become a valuable tool for the Perseverance team, scouting out interesting geological formations and the best routes to get there. Perseverance's mission is to search for signs of ancient microbial life that may once have existed in Jezero Crater and the large river delta which flows into it that river delta carried suspended sediments from further upstream down into a 45-kilometre-wide lake which once filled the crater floor. And scientists believe that makes the area an ideal place to search. Meanwhile, Perseverance has snagged two new samples of the Martian surface. But unlike the 15 rock core samples collected previously, these newer samples have come from a pile of windblown sand and dust, similar but smaller than a dune. Now contained safely in their special metal collection tubes, one of these two samples will be considered for deposit onto the Martian surface sometime this month as part of the Mars Sample Return Campaign. Scientists want to study the Martian samples using powerful lab equipment back on Earth, both as part of their search for signs of ancient microbial life and to better understand the processes which have shaped the surface of Mars. While most of the samples will be rock, researchers also want to examine some regular samples as well. They've even collected samples of the atmosphere. By the way, regolith is broken rock and dust. And it's interesting not only because of what it water can teach scientists about the geological and environmental processes on the red planet, but also to mitigate some of the challenges which astronauts will face once they arrive on Mars. You see, regolith can affect everything from spacesuits to solar panels. So it's just as interesting to engineers as it is to scientists. As with the rock core samples, these later samples were collected using a drill at the end of the rover's robotic arm. But for the regolith samples, Perseverance used a drill bit that looks more like a spike with small holes in it. And it's those holes which gather the loose material. Engineers designed the special drill bit after extensive testing with simulated regolith developed by NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. Known as Mojave Mars Simulate, it's made up of volcanic rock crushed into a variety of particle sizes from fine dust to coarse pebbles, and it's based on images of regolith and data collected by previous Mars missions. Studying the regolith close-up will help engineers design future Mars missions, as well as the equipment used by future Martian astronauts. The dust and regolith can be dangerous to spacecraft and scientific instruments alike. The regolith can jam sensitive parts and slow down rovers on the surface. And the dust grains could also pose unique challenges for astronauts. During the Apollo missions to the moon, astronauts found the lunar regolith was sharp enough to tear microscopic holes in their spacesuits. And it got everywhere, even inside the lunar landing module. As they were undressing after their lunar EVA, astronauts noticed a strange metallic smell in the cabin. And that was the smell of the lunar regolith. If you breathe in too much of that tiny, sharp regolith dust, it could damage your lungs. And the regolith on the Martian surface also contains perchlorates, and that's a chemical that becomes toxic to humans if large amounts are accidentally inhaled or ingested. On the Moon, and possibly on Mars as well, those regolith dust grains can be as fine as cigarette smoke, meaning it gets into their lungs. This is space time. Still to come... A new hypothesis suggests that dark matter could be made up of dark photons, and the countdown underway to April's total solar eclipse in Western Australia. All that and more still to come on Space Time. A team of scientists have hypothesized that the mysterious and invisible substance known as dark matter could be composed of something they're calling dark photons. Dark matter remains one of the great unanswered questions of science's understanding of the universe. Researchers have no idea what it is. But they know dark matter exists because they can see its gravitational effect on regular matter, holding galaxies together and preventing them from flinging apart as they rotate. And there's a lot of it, making up more than 75% of all the matter in the universe. So the stars, galaxies, planets, cars, dogs, houses and people make up less than 25% of everything we see in the universe. The new study reported in the journal Physical Review Letters suggests that dark matter could be made up of ultralight dark photons, a hypothetical particle that's heated up the universe. The study's authors, Andrea Caputo from CERN and the Tel Aviv University, James Bolton from the University of Nottingham, Hong Wang Lu from New York University, and Matteo Ville from the International School of Advanced Studies in Italy, claim their hypothesis is in excellent agreement with observations made by the Cosmic Origin Spectrograph aboard the Hubble Space Telescope. This instrument takes measurements of the large-scale cosmic web-like structure of the universe on cosmological scales. The cosmic web shows that our universe is made up of thin strands and filaments of galaxies and larger clumps and connecting nodes of galaxy clusters and superclusters, all surrounding vast, near-empty voids. The data collected by the Cosmic Origin Spectrograph suggests that these galaxy filaments are hotter than the predictions made by the hydrodynamical simulations of the standard model of structure formation. Now, to explain all this, the authors have suggested that there must exist as yet undiscovered dark photons. These hypothetical new particles would be force carriers for a new force in the dark sector, in the same way that regular photons are force carriers for electromagnetism. The authors say dark photons would be able to convert into low-frequency regular photons, providing the additional heat detected in the cosmic web filaments. However, unlike standard model photons, which have no mass, dark photons would have some mass. In particular, an ultralight dark photon, with a mass as small as 20 orders of magnitude less than an electron, would be an ideal candidate for dark matter. They say dark photons and regular photons are also able to mix in the same way as the different flavours of neutrinos, allowing ultralight dark photons, dark matter, to convert into low-frequency photons. Vield says these photons would then heat up the cosmic web, But, unlike other heating mechanisms based on astrophysical processes, such as star formation and galactic winds, the heating process of dark photons would be more diffuse, and it would be more efficient in regions that are not very dense. He says that usually cosmic filaments have been used to probe small-scale properties of dark matter In this case, his team have used them for the first time to study the low-redshift intergalactic medium data as a calorimeter in order to check whether the heating processes they're aware of is sufficient to reproduce the data. But they found this wasn't the case. Something was missing. And that's what they're modelling as the contribution produced by the dark photon. This is space-time. Still to come. NASA's Mars Insight lander still operational, but only just... A countdown's now underway to April's total solar eclipse in Western Australia, and later in the Science Report, the world's oldest DNA is being discovered in Ice Age sediments in northern Greenland. All that and more still to come on SpaceTime. Well, it seems NASA's Mars InSight lander mission is still alive and operational despite a major dust storm sweeping across the Red Planet. InSight's mission managers are carefully controlling the lander's instruments to help the solar-powered spacecraft conserve as much power as possible. Still, InSight is expected to end its mission within days. That's because there's been another drop in power generated by its solar panels as a continental-sized dust storm swirls over the Martian southern hemisphere. First observed in late September by NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, the Martian dust storm is roughly 3,500 kilometres from InSight and initially had little impact on the lander. Scientists at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California are carefully monitoring the lander's power levels, which have been steadily declining as dust continues to accumulate on its solar arrays. By October, the storm had grown so large and was lofting so much dust into the air that the thickness of the dust haze in the Martian atmosphere around InSight had increased by nearly 40%. With less sunlight reaching the lander's solar panels, its energy fell from 425 watt-hours per Martian day or sol down to just 275 watt-hours per sol. Currently, InSight's seismometer has been operating for about 24 hours every other Martian day. But the drop in solar power simply doesn't leave enough energy to completely recharge the batteries every soul. At the current rate of discharge, the lander could only possibly continue operating for a few more days. So to help conserve energy, mission managers have turned off InSight's seismometer for two weeks. InSight's project manager Chuck Scott from JPL says they're now on the bottom rung of the ladder when it comes to power. The team estimate that InSight's mission will end sometime between now and January, based on predictions of how much the dust on its solar panels will reduce its power generation. Still, the lander has long since surpassed its primary mission, and is now close to the end of its extended mission, conducting lots of bonus science by measuring Mars quakes, which have revealed lots of details about the interior of the Red Planet. The good news is there are signs that the large regional dust storm has peaked and has now entered its decay phase. The Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter's Climate Sounder instrument, which measures the heat caused by dust absorbing sunlight, is seeing the storm's growth slow down. And those dust-raising clouds observed by the orbiter are now not expanding as rapidly as they were before. This regional dust storm wasn't a big surprise. It's the third storm of its kind seen this year. In fact, Mars dust storms occur at all times of the Martian year, although they tend to see bigger ones occurring during the Northern Hemisphere fall and winter, which is now coming to an end. Mars dust storms aren't as violent or dramatic as Hollywood portrays them. While the winds can blow up to 100 km per hour, the Martian air is so thin, just 199th the pressure of Earth there, that these storms have only a fraction of the strength of similar storms on Earth. But mostly, the storms are messy. They toss billowing dust high into the atmosphere, which then slowly drifts back down, sometimes taking weeks. On rare occasions, scientists have seen these dust storms grow into planet-encircling events, completely enshrouding Mars. And it was one of these planetary-sized dust storms which brought NASA's solar-powered Opportunity rover to an end back in 2018. Luckily, because they're nuclear-powered, NASA's Curiosity and Perseverance rovers have nothing to worry about, at least not in terms of dust affecting their energy output. But the solar-powered Mars Ingenuity helicopter has also noticed an overall increase in background haze. Let's hope those whirling rotors keep the solar panels clean. This is Space Time. Skywatchers have started counting down the days until April's total solar eclipse in the skies above northwestern Australia, which will take place on April the 20th. The celestial spectacular will begin in the southern ocean near Antarctica, before heading northeast over the southern Indian Ocean and then making landfall at Exmouth on the western Australian coast. It'll then skim the Pilbara and Kimberley coasts before heading out over the Arafura Sea, crossing Indonesia and moving out into the vast expanse of the tropical Pacific Ocean. For those in Exmouth on the day, the event will begin at 10.04 Western Australian Standard Time. That's when the moon will appear to touch the sun's disk. Totality will begin at 11.29am, ending 58 seconds later. And the show will be all over just after 1pm. The total solar eclipse will be the highlight, but not the only astronomical spectacle skywatchers can expect in 2023. And to help you keep track of astronomical events during the year, the Powerhouse Museum's Sydney Observatory has once again launched its popular annual sky guide. The 33rd and latest edition of the Australasian Sky Guide provides stargazers and the general public with an easy-to-follow tour of the majestic southern night skies. And, of course, it's a great companion to Space Time's monthly Skywatch episode. The Sky Guide, which has been published annually since 1991, contains all the latest star maps and information on the key astronomical events expected over the coming year. The 2023 Sky Guide was written by Honorary Professor Nick Lom from the University of Southern Queensland.
2: Well, the major, the really big event in uh, 2023 is the total eclipse of the Sun on the 20th of April. That will be visible from uh, Exmouth which is on Northwest Cape on the um, coast of Western Australia. Obviously you have to be there to see the total eclipse and that is a fantastic event to be, a fantastic experience to be there for a totality. But it is seen as a partial eclipse throughout Australia. It depends how close you are, how much of the sun is covered by the moon. Darwin is the closest to the eclipse so that that's uh, 85% covered from Perth, 77, Adelaide, 32, Melbourne, 21, and Sydney on the 18th percent So it does vary throughout the year. It's still worthwhile looking, but of course, it's extremely dangerous to look directly at the sun. So, what's needed are eclipse grasses, special eclipse grasses, which are easily available from astronomy stores. Or using the pinhole projection, making lots of holes in a piece of cardboard and projecting the image on, on a white piece of paper. And you can see the crescent shape of the eclipse as the eclipse progress. Then other events are. Uh, are two supermoons in August, both at the beginning and at the end of August. Supermoons are uh, when the full moon rises, and it also happens to be a time when the moon is closest to Earth. The moon varies as an oval-shaped path around the Earth. It varies from... Uh, 363,000 kilometres to 405,000 kilometres from the Earth. So if it happens to be at its uh, nearest point to the Earth, at a time of full moon, we have what's referred to as a super moon. So in 2023, there are two of them, and both in August. The second one is also a blue moon. A blue moon is the second full moon in the month. So August has two full moons, and the second and the first, the second one is referred to as the blue moon and i should say that the sky guide really emphasizes things that you can easily see that they naked die from cities light polluted cities and no background in astronomy is needed so it really just empowers people to know so they can look up at the sky and know what they're looking
0: at we use it here at spacetime as part of sky watch and it just Works great. Everything you need's there is there. It's at your fingertips. And it's always got some stunning images on the front cover.
2: That's right. As I said, it's suitable for people without a background in astronomy, but it gives the basic information that professional astronomers or amateur astronomers need. When the moon rises, when the sun rises, when the planets rise, when the planets are close together. So it gives the basic information of what's happening in the sky for the year. Yes, as you say, the cover is always spectacular. This year, I think it's the very best one. The photographs on the cover are chosen from a competition called the David Mallin Awards run each year by uh, the Central West Astronomical Society. All the best astronomical photographers in Australia uh, submit photographs for that competition and the photograph for the cover is chosen from among the winners. And this year it's by Paul Hayes, phot- astronomical photographer in South Australia. He called the image the Dragon's lair. It's very spectacular. It's a nebula. So this is a gaseous patch in the sky and it's got various colours. Everything is happening there. Some of it is a reflection nebula, a bright blue star, and the light just illuminates gas gather dust around it and there's a nice blue, blue patch and that's a reflection nebula which is the main part of the image. It's a very spectacular image too, so people will look out for it. There are a couple of planetary conjunctions of note during the year. The planet Venus, the brightest object in the night sky, apart from the moon is close to Saturn, the ring planet in January, late January. They're only separated by the full moon, so they're very close together and be chance to take spectacular photographs and to try and photograph Venus and hopefully the rings of Saturn at the same time. Then a couple of months later in March, Venus is in conjunction or very close to the giant planet Jupiter. So that should also be something to really look forward to. And of course, there is maps in the sky guide for every month showing where the stars are, information on where the planets are uh, during the months, when to see the planets. And there's also updated information on the planets and comets, which I think is interesting in its own right, but it would be very good material for a Rose School project.
0: And 2023, of course, also marks an important anniversary for the Polish astronomer Copernicus. Tell us about it.
2: That's right. It's 550 years since its birth. And, uh, of course, he was the astronomer who put the sun in the centre of our solar system. Previously, people went by the Greek idea that Earth was the centre of our solar system, and the sun, the moon, and the planets moved around it.
0: Yeah, wheels within wheels, circles within circles, orbits within orbits.
2: That's right. To make that work, they needed all these complicated mechanisms of epicycles and eccentric circles. And it was all very complicated and all just to make sure that the Earth is stationary. But Copernicus decided that, quite rightly, that the whole system could be simplified by Putting the sun at the centre or close to the centre and the planets around it makes the mechanism far simpler. The Sky Guide is available from lots of bookshops and recommended free to Retour Prize is $19.99 and it's very convenient, paperback size, paperback format, easy to carry around. And it's also available as an
0: e-book. That's Honorary Professor Nick Lom from the University of Southern Queensland. And the 2023 Australasian Sky Guide is available from all good bookstores and online from the Powers Museum's Sydney Observatory. This is Space Time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with the science report. The world's oldest DNA has been found in ice age sediments in northern Greenland, revealing that plants and animals were part of this ancient ecosystem. The two-million-year-old DNA is a full million years older than the previous record holder, DNA sampled from the bone of a Siberian mammoth. The analysis reported in the journal Nature showed that while some DNA fragments were from predecessors of present-day species, others came from species that were impossible to place in the DNA libraries of animals, plants and microorganisms still living in the 21st century. Scientists discovered evidence of reindeer, rabbits, lemmings, birch and poplar trees. And they even found evidence of a mastodon, that's an Ice Age elephant-like mammal, which was previously unknown in Greenland. A new study warns that people with obesity are at a higher risk of vitamin D deficiency. The findings, reported in the British Medical Journal, are based on a study of 3,500 people. The subjects were divided into four categories based on their body mass index. There was a healthy weight, an overweight and obese class 1, and a combined obesity class 2 and 3. Researchers then looked at their nutrient levels. The authors found that those with obesity classes 2 and 3 were consistently more likely to be vitamin D deficient, which they suggest could well be as a result of spending less time outdoors. The authors say they found no association between body mass index and anemia or vitamin B2 deficiency. Scientists have measured the highest toughness of any material ever recorded. A report in the journal Science described the metallic alloy made of chromium, cobalt and nickel as extremely ductile, meaning it's highly malleable, and impressively strong, meaning it's resistant to permanent deformation. Impressively, its strength and ductility improves as it gets colder. And that's counter to most other materials, which tend to become more brittle as temperature drops. A research team from the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory and the Oak Ridge National Laboratory say their new alloy belongs in a subset of a class of metals known as high-entropy alloys. In a case that's either scientific incompetence or deliberate fraud, a study looking at the effects of a homeopathic treatment for a deadly cancer has falsely claimed that the pseudoscientific treatment worked. An independent scientific review of the study found that it was full of errors and falsified data yet somehow managed to sneak through the oncologist peer review process and get published. Tim Mindham from Australian Skeptics says it's all part of an ongoing effort by those promoting homeopathy to try and legitimise their business.
1: Homeopathy is a medical treatment that's been around for a couple hundred years. It was basically based on the idea that like cures like, so if you've got a problem with coffee, you take more coffee. But the problem is that the Cure, the actual treatment has to be diluted and it's diluted and diluted and diluted and diluted and diluted. I mean, it goes on and on and on for 30 times, 100 times dilution, right? You put like a, a teaspoonful in a litre of uh, water and then you take that mixture and you take another teaspoonful and put it in another litre of water and you keep doing it until basically there's nothing left of the original product that you're sort of using as a treatment. Literally nothing left. There couldn't be even a molecule left. And that's supposed to be the more you dilute it, the more powerful it is, which is. Ridiculous! They were saying, therefore, that that ends up curing people, but every study has shown that it's only placebo effect if it works at all. So it's scientifically impossible. It's physically physics implausible, and medically and research wise, it doesn't work. And yet it's still being solved still being pushed. It's often pushed on the basis that it's herbal, must work. But of course, a lot of the treatments are not herbal, and they've been manipulated and uh, changed a lot in what you're actually getting in the in the bottle, which is largely just water or a uh, sugar solution in some cases to make it more palatable. I've seen things to stop, um, homeopathic treatments to stop barriers in your life, which is made out from a lump of the Berlin Wall, which is hardly herbal. They take it, they took a stone from the Berlin Wall, crushed it up, and diluted it in water, and they said, this treatment will stop you having barriers in your life. It's shonky, quite frankly certainly nothing sort of scientific in it as well. And that's been uh, shown many times, many surveys and all sorts of things like that, including a study done by the Australian National Health and Medical Research Council, which said there's nothing here. All the evidence put forward is is pretty shonky. Now, the homeopathic industry has been desperate to try and find good scientific research which shows how effective homeopathy is. So this was a particular study that came up in the magazine, or it's a learned journal called Oncologist, which is a respectable journal, and talking about how homeopathic products could be used for uh, non-small cell lung cancer. And this showed all these wonderful results, etc. And of course all the homeopaths are saying, here, see, prove it, it's it's there. This was an Austrian result actually from authors were in Austria. So the German homeopathic Homeopathy Information Network had a look at this closely, and then they alerted Austrian authorities in the scientific field to this study and how much people were quoting it and promoting it. And they looked at it closely, and they found out that it was absolute junk. There was false evidence, there was misrepresentation of uh, data, there was things missing out of it that was, were obvious that would have shown a, a different or a modified result. And they went to town on it, and they said it absolutely should be withdrawn from this learned journal, which is a decent learned journal. I think got railroaded a bit. And uh, published this paper, and it was absolute rubbish. And of course, the, the authors of it said, Oh, no, no, I've heard your allegations. They're obviously not true. Well, apparently, this sort of in depth study found that it was true. And they said that uh, what was the actual wording? Several of the results can only be explained by data manipulation or falsification. In other words, they've got data and they skew it to give a certain result, or they made it up. The publication was very different to what the study actually found, and the committee decided that it is highly unlikely that the principal investigators and authors could not have been aware of these uh, discrepancies, if they like. So the study showed one thing, the paper showed something totally different, and that's the problem, actually, that uh, interpretation is in the eye of the beholder. And in this case, homeopathy, which is still trying to find scientific justification for itself, which there ain't none, quite frankly, it is one of the areas that I think sceptics can say 100% wrong. Most areas, sceptics are a bit more restrained than that and say unlikely. This one is just it just cannot work physically and all the tests show any scientific studies most of them are quite shonky this is what the NH and MRC found and poorly worked out poorly run studies not enough samples in the studies whatever or they in this case were they just falsifying results so the homeopathy people keep trying to get something to justify it and so far they haven't been very successful in doing that.
0: That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics.